You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Church, uh, the kindergartners can now be released to the back to Miss Marie as they go to their classrooms. And if you would, would you please take your Bibles this morning and open up to Luke uh, chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. Um, We're going to continue this morning in the book of Luke, uh, verse by verse, as we do here as a church. Um, And so please turn your Bibles to uh, Luke 19, verses 28 through 40. Uh, If you're a visitor here to the field, I just want to introduce myself. My name is Tanner Stockton, and I serve here at the Field Church um, uh, regularly uh, leading worship on Sunday mornings. Um, But as always, uh, it doesn't matter uh, what's going on. When Pastor Sam asked me uh, to preach God's Word, I have to say yes. It is such a privilege uh, to be here and to uh, spend time studying God's Word uh, so that uh, it can be faithfully explained. Uh, I pray at least, um, to you all who come on Sunday morning to hear God's word. So uh, again, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40, so get there uh, if you haven't already. And this morning, we arrive at a very noticeable and famous text in the storyline of Jesus, which is the triumphal entry. And while we may call it that, the actual setting around this text and the implications of it would hardly be called triumphal. If you knew what was going to happen just five days after, uh, after the events in our text today. And don't get me wrong, it is indeed triumphal, uh, Jesus fulfilling scripture and coming into Jerusalem finally, but not in the way the crowd would have it, not in the way uh, that they're praising and, uh, and adoring him as he walks in. I love how Pastor John MacArthur began his commentary for this text And I thought it was very fitting to help us understand the reality of this text and its significance for us uh, in understanding the life of Christ and his ministry here uh, on earth. So paint for yourself this picture in your mind. It's June 28th, 1838, and you're in London, England. This day is significant because this is the day that hundreds of thousands have been waiting to take part in. She's been sitting on the throne for one year, waiting for this day. The coronation of Queen Victoria is finally going to take place. In fact, there were nearly 400,000 people lining the streets of London to get a glimpse of this carriage that bore the queen of the land. Dressed in the finest regalia, every important official taking their place in the procession, All eyes are glued to the scene and going wild with shouts of joy as their newly minted queen passes them by. She arrives at Westminster Abbey for the service that is about to be performed, which will once and for all pronounce her the sovereign over the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. At just 19 years old, she is now the most powerful person in her land. 
in stark contrast to this coronation and the thousands of others that have taken place like it, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was brought into his city and place of reigning on the back of a donkey's foal, saddled with the dirty cloaks of his ordinary disciples, riding on the dirt of Judea, heading up to Jerusalem. And sure, he was greeted with the cries and the adoration of many, but none who really understood what was taking place. Even his disciples were confused about the proceedings, as John tells us in his account. John 12, 16 says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Yes, the king of the universe, the one spoken of in Genesis 3, Psalm 24, Psalm 118, and so many other places would not enter in on the white horse as so many expected, but rather fulfilling the prophecy that was long ago spoken of him in Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming to you. The righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The faithful among them surely would have remembered this. And even the Pharisees, having recalled this text, were all the more angered that this meek and lowly man could misrepresent the scriptures to such a grand scale. Little did they know the one they longed for was right in front of them and fulfilling the scriptures that they so cherished. Even though Jesus had given them every sign and every reason to believe, they hardened their heart against him and chose the path of adversary instead of friend. This morning, what we will see in our text is that the Messiah was going to finish the work that was set before him. He would accomplish all that was spoken of him. This morning, we will continue to see what has long been told of the Redeemer. As Psalm 2 says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We will see clearly the one whom we sang of this morning from Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The only person these texts could be talking about is Jesus. And this morning we will see him ascend the hill and enter the holy city. So without further ado, let's read our text this morning and let's get into it as we go through it verse by verse. Luke 19, 28 through 40. Start in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks of you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. 
And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Like I've already mentioned this morning, the main point that we're going to see this morning is that the author is communicating to us this morning is that Jesus uh, is further proving he is Messiah by fulfilling the words that were spoken about him long ago and demonstrating his deity. Not only is he demonstrating this fact by his entry into Jerusalem in this specific time and specific way, but the sovereignty and meticulous care that he shows over the events that take place in this passage demonstrates this as well. Again, Jesus is showing once again that he is indeed Messiah by fulfilling the prophecies that were spoken of him long ago and demonstrating his deity. This morning, though this text is not calling us to some action step specifically, what it is calling us to is to adore our king, submit to his authority, and to rightly acknowledge who he is. And really, the most fitting title for this message this morning is simply the triumphal entry. Others have titled this section section, the humble coronation or Jesus' controversial approach to Jerusalem. And these titles are fine, but I can't steal them, nor can I improve upon them. So I thought this morning the simple description of what this text is teaching fits very well. So let's take some time this morning to break down this text so we can see the main point and learn what the author, namely the Holy Spirit, is teaching us through this passage. And we're going to start this morning with the first point. Number one this morning is the preparation. Verses 28 through 34, the preparation. Verse 28 says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went away and found it, just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. So now as we get into the text this morning, my aim, uh, as I've already said, is just to break it down and to explain each part of it uh, so that you can get a sense of the, important, uh, the importance of each part of this text. From top to bottom, there isn't one part that's to be thrown away are unnoticed. So as we begin, we have to acknowledge the immediate context of this passage due to the author pointing it out. He says when he had said these things, and this is of course referring, these things is of course referring to the parable of the minas that we heard Pastor Sam preach on just a few weeks ago. 
And if you'll recall the main point of that text, it was Jesus made clear what would take place before his future kingdom takes place. He was making clear the opportunity there was to respond to his salvation. Jesus taught on salvation, particularly from the middle of Luke 18 to the text that precedes this one. And after he taught on the various conditions to saving faith, he then gives explicit, an explicit parable describing what it looks like to be faithful with this gift of salvation. And after he said these things, our text says that he went on ahead. Now I want to stop and simmer on this little phrase that the author includes about Jesus' initiative here. The phrase, went on ahead, could be better translated as, he went forward. Knowing what lies, behind, lies ahead and knowing what would be awaiting him, he led the way to his faith. Some commentators say that he went alone in his journey forward. He was going to lead the way to where he was going, and that namely is to the cross. This points to the willingness of Jesus to accomplish the work that the Father gave him. And we know this to be the case. As Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It could have been very easy for Jesus to sulk in the shadows and avoid the fate that lay before him. But in this text, among many others, we see the courage and boldness of Christ to do the work that the Father gave him. We see the same attitude in Luke 12.50 when Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And what he means here is that it is his greatest desire to complete the plan that the Father has given to him. So here in this first verse, we see the initiative that Jesus has always shown in completing God's will in full force. And while you can say that each step Jesus took on earth was a step closer to his death, these steps are pointing directly toward the place of his execution. So as he approaches Jerusalem, we are told in verse 29 uh, that he draws near to Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives. Now I think it's important to point out that the Mount of Olives is an a very important place in Jesus' last week. This mount will serve as his home base until he's betrayed and arrested. We see in Luke 21, 37 and 38, the pattern of his last week. It says, And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount of, called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Geographically, the Mount of Olives was one of three peaks on the east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives was directly uh, across from the temple. The Mount of Olives also has eschatological importance as well, meaning it has a significant place in the doctrine of the end times. Zechariah 14, 4 and 5, speaking of the day of the Lord, says this, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other, other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. 
And while Luke makes no mention of this significance in this text, he will, also, he will mention in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus ascends from this mountain and also an angel then announces that Jesus will return as he departed, suggesting that this might be the place where Jesus returns. And one other thing to note about this location is that it's the place where Jesus prays before his crucifixion. In Luke twenty-two thirty-nine, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when, uh, which is located on the Mount of Olives. Therefore, this text gives us some locational context for the next several chapters in this gospel. Now, between the two towns are, that are mentioned, Bethany is, of course, a very well-known town in the New Testament context because it's the place where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha resided. And Jesus has completed many great works here. Bethphage, however, is not as well known. Something to note in this verse is the order in which the author lists these cities. He names Bethphage first, even though Bethany comes first in the path of Jesus. But we can tell that Bethphage is the village that Jesus now instructs his two disciples to go and get the colt. In verse 30, saying, Go into the village in front of you, when on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat, untie it and bring it, bring it here. Now in these verses, what we see is an undeniable display of Christ's omniscience and sovereignty in orchestrating the events that are to take place on his way to Jerusalem. First, dealing with his omniscience, he instructs the disciples to go to Bethphage, and when they get there, there will be a cult that they are to untie and bring it back to him. And then he knows that this particular cult is one on which no man has ever sat. And then he tells them that the owners of this cult are going to ask them, why are you untying it? To which the disciples are to respond, the Lord has need of it. And then we know what comes next. Verse 32 tells us the exact situation which Jesus describes will happen indeed does happen. And in every single gospel where, uh, every single gospel in the um, where the, um, the triumphal entry is told, um, the language differs uh, how each, and I'll explain a little later, how each gospel writer writes this text, but every, um, every time Jesus tells them what to say and what they are to say, what they will be told and what they are to say is the exact same, proving that he is sovereign. The point in that is that he knows exactly what's going to happen. His omniscience is on full display. And we shouldn't read quickly by this. From our perspective, it's easy to do so because we have the whole book in front of us. We know that Jesus conquers the grave and that he is the one who the prophets long spoke about. But put yourself in the disciples' sandals. At this point, they had seen enough to know that Jesus is usually right when he says something. But even still, this foreknowledge of Jesus is just another proof that he is different, that he knows all things, and that with him there is no waywardness. Every promise will be fulfilled in Christ. And the disciples are experiencing this firsthand. Now in dealing with the display of his sovereignty, there are several things about the scenario to understand. There's obvious significance with the cult. And there's another text in the Old Testament that has some foreshadowing imagery of this event. Firstly, the cult. It's important for the plan of redemption. It was important for the plan of redemption that Jesus ride into Jerusalem on the back of the colt. Because we've already read, and I'll read it again, Zechariah 9, 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. 
Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Long before Jesus was walking the earth, this was the plan for him to enter in on the back of a colt. Only as we'll see more clearly later, the Jews didn't take this text in the way that it was meant, meaning they expected a grand coronation, one in which Jesus would triumphantly enter in and crush the enemies underneath his feet. And there are Old Testament implications, but as, as has already been established through the preaching from this pulpit, that, is that the Jews, and especially the Pharisees, who were experts in the law, did not understand the two advents or the comings of Christ. Also to be noted is that this cult is one in which no one has ever sat. In the Old Testament, animals for sacred use could not be put to ordinary use. This cult was indeed sacred because it would be carrying the sacrificial lamb to his destination. This cult had to be pure. Another fascinating connection to the cult uh, can be found in Genesis 49 when Jacob is giving his blessing over his sons and what would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we know that Christ is from the line of Judah and if, you're, and if you look at the blessing that Jacob pronounces over Judah, there's an interesting connection to this text. Starting in Genesis 49 verse 10 it says, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and the allegiance of the nations is his He ties his donkey to the vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He washes his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of graves. This colt was tied up, and it was tied up in none other than a town that is known for its vineyards and olive orchards. This this connection points all the more to Jesus as Messiah. So what we see in these verses, in this first point, is the undeniable display of of Christ's omniscience as well as his sovereignty in orchestrating these events in the exact way that they are supposed to happen. Jesus is displaying that he indeed is Messiah and that this ride into, into Jerusalem is not a mere journey, but the humble coronation of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now as we continue on into our text, we move to our second point this morning, which is the fulfillment. Read in verse 35, it says, And they brought to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along, and they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So after the two disciples completed the task that Jesus sent them on, they brought back the colt and saddled it with their cloaks and put Jesus on the donkey. Now, riding the colt did have some precedence in the Davidic line, with David sometimes riding a mule, seen in 1 Kings 1:38 and 44, and also Solomon riding a mule during his coronation as well, which, we can, be, which can also be found in 1 Kings 1:32 through 40. But We've already pointed out that Jesus riding this cult was more important than just following the tradition set before him. The last half of Zechariah 9.9 says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
So what we see here is the fulfillment of what was long ago spoken by the prophet. Luke is the only gospel writer to note that, this, that the disciples set Jesus on the cold. But all these details point to the submission to the king. And as Jesus gets started, uh, Luke notes the spreading of the cloaks on the road as he moves forward. This points to 2 Kings 9.13 when Jehu ascends to the throne. It says, Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. What is clear is, as we make our way through this text, is that the people know that this procession has significance. They know that Jesus is the king. They just don't know the details of what's coming after his entry into Jerusalem. It's known and should be mentioned that these people probably thought that they were lining the road and would one day be able to say that they saw the time when the king went and took over his rightful kingship in Jerusalem. Though they didn't fully grasp what was going on, Jesus' acceptance of the crowd's adoration and worship was appropriate, for as the Son of God, he is worthy of all praise. And again, as I've already mentioned, his disciples who had been with him all along did not grasp what was going on either. As John tells us in John 12, 16, as we've read, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So we have a large and fitting procession here, but their purpose wouldn't become clear to them until after the events of the cross. And as we continue in the text, in verse 37, it says that as he was drawing near on the way down from the Mount of Olives, that the whole crowd of his disciples began to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So we know that as he headed down from the Mount of Olives, he is now clearly headed in to Jerusalem, which he first weeps over, which we'll study next week, and then he goes and cleanses the temple. First of all, Luke notes that they began rejoicing over all the mighty works that he had done. He's already proven he is Messiah by the many works that he had done in front of him. Um, just recently, he had healed the blind beggar. No doubt the raising of Lazarus was in view since they were near Bethany. And the myriad of other miracles that Jesus had performed throughout his ministry. But these signs were not for the physical healing that came from them. Though they were indeed beautiful acts of mercy on the part of Jesus each time. The reason for these signs was to prove and to authenticate that Jesus was Messiah. Remember him telling John the Baptist when he began to doubt and, uh, and send a group of followers to inquire of Jesus, Luke 7, 20 through 23 tells of that account. In verse 20 it says, And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, speaking of Jesus, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, John's disciples, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
when John's disciples went back and told him what Jesus said, John needed to hear no more. He knew what Jesus was communicating to him. And that was that he had proven he was Messiah, in part by the works that he did. He did, again, not for the physical benefit, but to authenticate his identity as Messiah. And here, in our context, while it is right for the crowds to praise Christ for all that he has done, they are still without understanding as to what this humble coronation is all about. And with their praise, they begin to quote Psalm 118, verse 26, which was known to be a greeting to the king as he approached the temple. You may notice uh, in Luke's gospel, he omits the word Hosanna from the cries of the crowd, which means save us. The reason is because to Greek readers, which is to who Luke's audience was, they would have no basis for understanding this Hebrew word. Each of the gospel writers all use the line from Psalm 118 about, their, about the blessedness of the one who comes in the name of the Lord, but each writer gives its own twist. Matthew speaks of the crowds giving praise to the son of David, cites the psalm, and then notes the cries of Hosanna in the highest. Mark speaks of those going before and behind crying Hosanna, cites the psalm, uh, notes another blessing for the coming kingdom of our father David, and closes with the cries of Hosanna in the highest. And then John mentions the Hosanna, cites the psalm, and adds the note of blessing on the king of Israel. And as I mentioned earlier, as a side note, each author tells the account to aid in the main purpose of their writing of the Gospels. Matthew wrote to the Jews, Luke wrote to the Greeks, Mark wrote to the Romans, and John wrote to everyone. So the way each one recounts the timeline of Jesus' life is meant to support the purpose of their writing. Also, in the other gospel accounts, we see the waving of palm branches, which is why this day is traditionally called Palm Sunday. And this waving of the palm branches symbolized Jewish nationalism and victory. So the shouting of the reference to Psalm 18 paired with the palm branches and the fanfare points to the eventuality of the crowd proclaiming Jesus the king and him freeing the Jewish people from the Roman rule. And as we will see, this ignites the Pharisees into a fit of worry. And they, of course, bid Jesus to rebuke the crowds, probably so there wouldn't be a commotion large enough to get the Romans involved. But Jesus, of course, tells them that nothing can stop his praise being poured forth. But to focus more on Psalm 118 and its significance and its context uh, in this text a little more, we must know that Psalm 118 is the close of what is called the Egyptian Hallel, which covers Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Hallel means praise, and Egyptian is a reference to Passover, which is significant to our text in itself. And essentially, these stretch of Psalms, 113 to 118, were sung in remembrance of their captivity and release from the nation of Egypt. This remembrance was a big deal, of course, big enough for the Lord to instruct the Jews that they were going to celebrate the Passover each year so that they could teach the importance of it to their children and so they would never forget how the Lord delivered them from their bondage. It's important because we must remember that in the timeline of this text, we are roughly one week away from Passover. And while the Jews remember the Passover still during this time period, there's yet to be a final sacrifice that would fully atone for the sin of God's people. And it was fitting that the people quoted from this psalm because indeed 
Jesus was the ultimate Passover lamb that was to come. What they did not understand, that was instead of the material triumph that they so desired to see, they would see the spiritual triumph of Christ dying for the sins of his own and rising again from the grave. But look at some of these verses in Psalm 118 that point toward the truth of who Jesus is and also point to his entering into Jerusalem, the holy city. Verse 19 says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them, and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Jesus is indeed the cornerstone, and they will indeed reject him. But continuing on, as they quote from verse 26, which says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Their cries are not untrue. He is blessed indeed. But they thought they were ushering him uh, to his coronation and to him becoming king in Jerusalem. Verse 27 continues and no doubt gives clarity to what is about to take place with Jesus. Verse 27 of Psalm 118 says, The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. The difference is that the sacrifice would not be bound with cords but with nails. And the altar would be the cross on the hill called Golgotha. In verse 38 when they are shouting for peace in heaven and glory in the highest, they're proving that their intention is off. What they mean is present peace and present glory. Jesus will indeed bring peace and his name will be glorified, but what has to happen first is the events of his crucifixion. There's a misunderstanding that this king would begin his reign and rule on earth now. They've missed the suffering servant passage that we see in Isaiah 53. They've missed that there is still to be an atonement and that it will happen in a way that they do not expect. This king who is supposed to conquer will appear to be conquered. But we know that this is not the final verdict. We know that he will rise again and all of these events prepare the way for his second advent when he will come back and forcefully take his kingdom. So what we're seeing in, in this section is of our text is a few things. First of all, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on the cult is the direct fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. And the spreading of the cloaks as well as the praise that they were pouring forth is imagery that would only occur if a king was being coronated or celebrated. With the cries of the crowd, Jesus is receiving the praise that he is due. Even if they don't fully understand why they are praising him, it will soon be made clear to them. We have to note, though, that this same crowd that is shouting Hosanna will be the same crowd shouting crucify just five days later. Now we move on to our third and final point this morning, and, and we deal with the last two verses of our passage this morning. Point number three is the rebuke. Verses 39 and 40. Verse 39 says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. 
As one commentator put it, the sentiment of praise floating through the crowd is not unanimous. Very plainly, some of the Pharisees who were in the crowd tell Jesus that he needs to instruct his disciples to be silent. This word for rebuke in verse 39 is epitemason, and it's an imperative form, signaling that these Pharisees are offended or worried by the disciples' messianic confession of Jesus and so seek to correct the situation as quickly as possible. To them, to the Pharisees, this praise is not only heretical, it's dangerous. And from their point of view, you could understand their plight. If they really believed that Jesus wasn't Messiah, then the proclamation of someone else would indeed be heresy. But there are three things, I think, that are important to point out. Number one, I don't think that they are innocent based on the character of what we have seen of the Pharisees throughout the Gospel of Luke. Number two, Jesus had clearly proven himself and their obstinance has more to do with political and social power than being concerned with the truth. And thirdly, the text we will study next week signifies their rejection of him anyway. Also, not to be missed is this connection of the Pharisees' response with the passage that we studied last week, specifically verse 14 of Luke 19 that says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. This being one of the last accounts that the Pharisees are mentioned, it's fitting that these are the remarks that they make. Jesus then replies to the Pharisees with a biting rebuke that carries with it a kingly authority that is rightfully held. He responds and tells these Pharisees that even if the crowd was silent, the very stones would cry out. This brings us back to Habakkuk, chapter two, verses 11 and 12, which says, for the stone will cry out from, from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. When Jesus says that they will cry out, he does not mean that they will cry out in praise, but that they would cry out in affirmation of God's judgment on wicked Israel. So church, in conclusion this morning, what we have seen, uh, we have seen Jesus' sovereignty and omniscience in orchestrating the events surrounding his triumphal entry. What we have seen is Jesus proving that even further that he is Messiah through the fulfillment of the prophecy that we see in Zechariah 9.9. Even the sovereignty of God to place Psalm 118 on the lips of the crowd is astounding given that they were unaware of what was soon to take place. They thought they were ushering in the king to reign when in fact he was coming to die. They thought that he would come to free them physically when he was coming to free them spiritually. This humble king was coming to do what only he could do. And though some would misunderstand his meekness for weakness, in just one week he would rise from the grave and put the final stamp of defeat over death for all who would place their trust in him. So I encourage you to remember that. And also to do it today, place your trust in Christ Jesus this morning if you have not yet done so. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, and we, God, we thank you for your truth. Lord, I'm, Lord, specifically struck this morning, God, how the King of kings and the Lord of lords entered into Jerusalem so humbly. 
God, when in fact, Lord, he, and it was met with, Lord, with all the praise, God, he should have had the highest praise. Lord, but as you've said in your word, when he comes back at his second coming, he's going to come in power. And he's going to come in the way that he deserves with all of heaven and earth glorifying his name. And that every knee will bow, whether forcefully or submissively. Lord, I pray this morning that you would give us the strength, God, give us the humility, Lord, to continue to bow humbly before Jesus. God, I pray that you would give the spiritual sight to those who don't already know Jesus. To instead of bowing forcefully on that day, God, that they would bow submissively. Lord, that you would change their hearts right here, right now with your word. God, we pray that you would do your work in our hearts. God, we pray that you would bless us, God, and continue to show yourself to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.